0: Thank you for joining us on another adventure in neuromonitoring. Please listen to the end of this cast for our disclaimers. You're listening to another stimulating adventure in the world of neuromonitoring. This is the IONM for Life podcast with your host, Scott Moore. This is the IONM for Life podcast. I have the distinct privilege to be your host, Scott Moore. Welcome and happy February to everyone. I am excited to bring you another adventure in neuromonitoring. Have you had a chance to check out the IONM for Life Insider, the official newsletter of the IONM for Life project? We just launched the first edition and I want to thank all my colleagues who contributed to that. You can check it out on LinkedIn. Just check my feed and subscribe. The link will also be posted up on the website. We're closing in on Valentine's Day, so I want to show the love to all the educators out there who are building up neurodiagnostic professionals. I recently had a great conversation with one such educator, Jennifer Legler, owner of Trusted Neurodiagnostic Academy. Trusted Neurodiagnostic Academy offers online programs and mentorship services for EEG, LTM, and neuromonitoring. Jennifer has a long career of investing in the neurodiagnostic community and has even served as expert witness in some legal cases involving neuromonitoring, so she has some valuable insights to share with all of us. Here's Jennifer. Tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: I live in the mountains of North Georgia. I have been in IOM for 17 years now in the neurodiagnostic field. I always wanted to be a neurologist or a neurosurgeon. Those were my goals when I was growing up. I was going to be a doctor with a lot of cats and life happens. And so when I was in my senior year, I was in physiology and my professor had us do a lab where it was pretty much like what we do in the OR as far as EMG and making these muscles move. And he told me about IOM. And so I got into IOM and was basically given a little bit of education and then thrown in there and say, good luck. And if you need anybody, here's who you have to call. And a doctor asked me questions and I had no idea the answers to them. And I didn't want to ever be in that situation again. So started Trusted Academy, basically trying to not have text in the same position I was in. Not working as a neurosurgeon or a neurologist, but I have a life and, uh, <laughs> able to train other techs.
0: Excellent. You, you make a great point. I remember when I first came into the field and again, this was about 17 years ago now or so. Uh, yeah, it was just more or less like, okay, uh, follow me around watch what I do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was it. That was it. And then, and then they would put me in a case and mm-hmm. somebody would be next door and I was just expected to plug and play is what I was taught how to plug and play yeah and the, a
0: lot of that happened early in our in, yeah over the past few decades in our field obviously and uh, and again and and we didn't have the same level of formal education opportunities that we have now. uh there was wasn't even a lot of online material you could access it's all more now it was called the, the tribal wisdom approach to niman on- <laughs> trading it's like just hand it down by legend it's like word of Word of mouth, like I would tell you, or we'd have, we had this folder of dusty documents. And yeah, spinal cord was one of the papers that was in there. It was a big, you know, yellowed copy of that dog eared and written on and, and, down yep. and uh, generation to generation.
1: <laughs> yep. Yep. I still have some of the books that I used when I was trying to study for my board. And, you know, they're the older editions, but they still hold the information that is pertinent. Yes. So, so I'm glad to see
0: uh, organizations such as yours kind of popping up. So, Tell me a little bit about what Trusted Neurodiagnostic Academy does.
1: So we provide um, foundation courses and board prep for EEG, LTM, IOM, and Evoke Potentials. We are starting a mentoring program next year for EEG and LTM, and then we'll roll it out for IOM. We also have a clinical EEG program that we started two years ago that's an Avert Recognized program. So the students go through, it's a 14-month program, and then when they're finished, they are eligible to sit for their boards under Pathway 2, and then we're working on clinical IOM programs. So now that I've said it, we have to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> so EEG is by far the biggest modality that we have, and I think it's because so many people are familiar with EEG, and it's an awesome way to get into the field, and the field is so in need of EEG tech. And from there, they kind of realize this isn't just putting electrodes on a patient's head. There's so much more to that. And then a lot of them look at it as a career move.
0: Absolutely, And I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I mean, I just, was just recently working in a hospital up in New York, and uh, they've they really <laughs> desperately needed more people for LTM uh, and, and just, just even processing the you know, the 24 hour studies and things like that. They just oh yeah overwhelmed, and so definitely yeah. need some reinforcements. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I I think, um, especially when we have the people apply to the program, we explain to them that there is so much more room for advancement. It's a career. It's not just a job that you can go as far or as little as you want to in the field. I think a lot of people are starting to realize that now that they also came out with the neuroanalyst credential and the LPM. I mean, that plays a big role in it. I'm actually working at a hospital getting my cases for my LPM. So I'll be sitting for my boards next year. So always learning, absolutely always
0: growing and stepping out of your comfort zone is always something yeah. more to learn. I mean, we're that's it. My my last interview candidate uh, said uh, it was Lauren Feltz. She said every day is a school day. That's <laughs> like yes, I like that. Every day be trying to learn something new every week at least. So let's say I'm I'm coming in brand new to this field. Why would your company be a good choice for me to get my initial footing?
1: A lot of um, smaller companies don't have the budget for an education director or they can't afford to have somebody sitting in a classroom for six months to learn the foundations of it they need them in cases so our program we put together the foundation we basically take a handbook that they come out with every year and then we have to tweak our courses and then that's what we build our courses on so everything is pre-recorded and they can access at any time so everything comes with a year subscription we have a new learning platform that we rolled out last year, so now they can message the instructors anytime they have a question. There's four of us in the company, and three of us are in IOM. We want to help people succeed because we don't want them to be in the same boat we were. EEG is the same thing. Everything has been pre-recorded, so you can access it any time. Everybody's schedule is so different, and you want to be able to access it when you're available, not when. You can't make a five o'clock class because you just got a stat EEG that you have to hook up. So we put together all of the material one place. When I was studying for my EEG, after a while, you're looking, you're watching the same videos, and you can recognize the pattern because it's the same you know epic you've been looking at for the last six months. So I actually got other books so I could look at different pictures of the same thing the variance or the abnormalities so that i could identify it and look at it a little bit different but at least we give you a foothold the mentoring program that will start petra has been doing that and we're just going to put it all up under one umbrella to kind of free up some of her time so it's all the same information it's just it's just under our umbrella but she's still going to be doing it and that's been helping a lot and i can't wait for that because when i start saying my lpm <laughs> that's, that's what i'll be doing have a lot of people when they are applying for the clinical program they say okay what time do I have to be available for classes and we're like you can access it whenever you want but they do have set time so they have like either a week or up to four weeks depending on the lesson but then I think there's only one time we have to actually match up our schedule so we can do an exam but other than that it's totally up to them which I think helps because we have a ton of people who work midnight they can act I mean I'm getting emails at two in the morning so that's the way the world works right now. Everybody wants access to everything right now. Hey, that's true. <laughs> yep. So that's what we try and do. The common curriculum is basically the A. Brett Handbook because they basically spell it all out for you. And as things change, they update it. So I think that's a good groundwork for everybody to work off of. Because if you know that and you know it well, you can sit for your boards and then you have our national certification showing I I know this material and I've been tested on it and I'm already up there with my peers. I have had a lot of hospitals contact me within the last year. They'll hire a company and sometimes it's an IOM company and they'll say, okay, well, we'll hire this company, but you have to provide, you know, 12 CEUs per tech per year, but it can't be from your company. It has to be from an outside company that is accredited or, you know, they earn AC CEUs. So I think that's awesome because I think a lot of people kind of get into the rut. Okay, I passed my boards and now I can do my job, but they don't keep up with the things that are changing. So I think that makes a huge difference. Um, I think it's definitely come a long way since when you and I both started. We both started about the same time. And I think it's come leaps and bounds and there's no reason why can today can't, don't have access to the material that they need, um, whether it be from us or from ASET or anywhere. I mean, you can find it anywhere. And you can also find good mentors that have been doing this for years and have the knowledge that want to teach people. And those are the people that, hands down, you'll learn the most from. Absolutely. I mean, again, I mean, there's, there's no substitute for
0: learning or monitoring in the operating room. you have to just do it hands on. To really yeah. to learn it. However, uh, the more that's bolstered by a good formal education program, the the better. And and you'll see a lot of just different styles, I should say. Yeah. In in people that go in the in the operating room, so continuity of care can be important too, especially if there's mm-hmm. a case handoff involved. I mean, you don't always see. Yes. A lot of private companies, you know, you're on your own. You got your traveling well you know, and you roll into the yep. hospital. You're on your own, right? But there are there are a lot of situations where one technologist, one neurophysiologist, whatever term you want to use. Uh, they relieve the other one. And then again, there should be some element of like, I know what I'm stepping into because I know you're doing pretty much the exact same as I would do. There shouldn't be too much individuality in in what you're doing. Um, No. Yeah. And and, and historically I've seen like, okay, you know, I'm doing this or I'm out of this channel. If there's not a good scientific reason to do that, if it's it's not based off of literature or some, like you're saying the Albert Handbook, for example, great example, just based on the literature, based on, on some established criteria that everybody can agree on and say, okay, this is, what a reasonable and prudent person would be doing. And yeah. So, yeah. And we need more of that. So when you're teaching this, that's why I'm really encouraged when you say your basis is the Albert handbook. Well, that's as good of a gold standard as you could want reading or field right now.
1: And yeah. So- and there's also the code of conduct mm-hmm. for a and from AbreT. Mm-hmm. um, been a, um, an expert witness in some IOM cases. And especially when it comes to motors, when I know what is required, but I have to find the, documentation to back it up and I would find that in the code of ethics so I think each company needs to have a policies and procedures when we go in and we do an ACDF this is what we do and this is why we do it the techs need to know okay this is what's happening this is this is the cause for an alarm and this is why and um, I think knowing the why for the techs is part of our job to educate them in that They can do the plug and play and they can do the follow the policies and procedures, but they need to know the why, why that's happening or why things are done that way. And I think a company is responsible to teach their tech that. Don't just do it because we said to do it, but this is why we have to do it this way. And I think that makes all the difference in the world. And I think a lot of people overlook the code of ethics because they just follow the guidelines. But the code of ethics explains why we have to do things certain ways. When you look up the guidelines for motors, there's nothing in there that says that the surgeon has to be told, I don't remember. But there when I was looking up my case, the guidelines for motors are not as cut and dry as they are for SSBPs and bears and things like that. So I had to go to the code of ethics and that was what I had to give the attorney to show this is why we have to do things this way. And I think a lot of people might overlook that.
0: That's an excellent point. Um, and again, I
1: mean... When we're aligned along uh a policy
0: procedures manual, code of code of conduct, uh, code of ethics, uh again, we you know, we, we stand on firmer ground when it, we go mm-hmm. through the providing of the neuromonitor service all the way up to knowing, you know, the, the surgeon's gonna know the the product they're getting, and we get even up to like, you know, God forbid the medical legal aspect of it, like we know that there is essentially the a, a established way of doing things and, and somebody mm-hmm. should know that. And, yeah. And I like the fact that yeah you know, we have education programs like, well, education programs like yours that are kind of basing off of that central axis so that's good.
1: I think a lot of tech sometimes also get into they get into the mindset of they're going in and doing the job, mm-hmm. and it's the same thing all the time. And they probably don't have any bad outcomes, but I think sometimes they get lax. And if something bad does come up, then I think they need to be aware that their actions. It's an actual medical legal document and it's not just your shorthand. And I think sometimes they have to be reminded of that. And that's also part of the code of ethics. So there's, there's a lot, a lot involved and we try and, I wouldn't say to scare people, but just to let them know, this is what happened to somebody else. And this is why this happened to somebody else. And this is what you need to do. So you're never in that position.
0: Yeah. It's just equipping, equipping, uh, the people were sending into the operating room. Yes, yeah. yeah, you you had brought that up actually earlier. You know, you were you were put in the operating room and not really equipped to answer the surgeon's questions, respond to you know certain challenges, and and I think that's a big part of why we need programs like yours, or and a lot of the other educational resources that like the professional societies provide. Mm-hmm. This idea that and and this is I'm a big proponent in trying to get more people engaged with the actual scientific literature tied in our field. So yeah. I, you at least are equipped. To, to you know when, when you're challenged and you will be challenged because you know our field is is still has yet to really establish a seat at the table to the degree that we really need to more effectively do our job more effectively walk in and say with authority that this is a situation that needs motors and not get pushed yeah. you know, push back on it because we don't want the patient to move or, or you know whatever. right right and uh and we're gonna need we're gonna need to be based off of good policy like you're saying and also just good understanding of of the scientific literature and be able to back back it up and say look there's a paper uh, just, I can give you three papers, at, you know, that say, this is this is why we need to move, do motors in these cases, it's for the patient's benefit. You know, we need to find yeah. to, to balance with the anesthesia regimen that allows us to do that for the patient's sake, for the surgeon's sake, you know.
1: Yeah. And following along the same line, when I first started, and I don't know if you experienced the same thing, there were so many had, like us who didn't know what we were doing and the surgeons were aware of that. And they would test me, you know, testing screws and then they wouldn't have it on there and they would wait to see what I would say, or they would say, I would tell them there would be firing and they'd say, what nerve root is that? I think that a lot of people were put in the same position and some people looked for the right answers or look for the knowledge to improve themselves and to make it a career. And some people it's just a job and it's just a plug and play. And unfortunately that's like that anywhere you go, no matter what kind of field you're in. And I think a lot of the surgeons, when you work with someone for a while, they know to trust you. So when you say something, they're going to listen to you. Yes. And um, that makes all the difference in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. I've said this repeatedly, I've written it repeatedly in articles, that the, the, the most valuable currency in our field, the most valuable component that makes it all work is the relationship, the person in the operating room. Providing the remonstrance mm-hmm. or it has with the surgeons, yeah, and the anesthesia team too, but primarily with the surgeon to say, okay, you know, we have a change. Okay, the surgeon yeah. took this very seriously. Uh, recently, I was in a case where again we had a we had a change in a positional change, you know, in the arm, and, and it, to the point where we tried to fix it, uh, we tried to address it, troubleshoot it, etc. Eventually, the surgeon broke scrub and went in and patted the elbow with a foam donut uh, himself, which yeah, was a level of saying like okay, I, I recognize what you're telling me is real. You've, you've checked out, you eliminated all the other variables that could have been. We know right. this is a positional change. I'm going to deal with it. Personally, yeah. the anesthesia can't do it themselves. Because
1: he and, looks bad too. If some if that patient wakes up with a deficit, it comes back to the surgeon. We're surgeon just the back there in the case. shadows. He's the right. one under the spotlight.
0: Exactly. And yeah. Yes. Uh, and again, so that, that level of trust you have as being part of the team as someone that is going to provide the surgeon with actionable data, feedback and say, okay, yeah, that screw probably is, you need to inspect that screw. You know, you tested those. screw, yeah. you inspect that screw. That, that, that arm is probably having a positional change, whatever the situation, you need to raise the blood pressure and they're going to act on that, you know, because, yeah. you know, they'll at least get a factor in all the decisions, you know, the factorials they have to make a decision and say, okay, we're going to act on this. I'm going to take it seriously yeah. at least, you know, Yeah. rather than like, okay, you're just here for the check a box.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I get cheaper... Malpractice insurance or whatever. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yes. Um someone who was training me many years ago said something I you know, kept it with me. It's like essentially you you act as a case historian. You're keeping a case log, you're keeping a chat mm-hmm. log with your oversight physician. That's a legal document. It's a legal mm-hmm. document and basically it's establishing if you know what happened when, uh, with timestamp and, and and knowing, you know, it basically could prove that everyone was taking your data seriously, that you know, you, you basically alerted the surgeon. Uh, my wife not that long ago was, she's in healthcare. She was on, on jury duty for a medical case uh, randomly. And uh, the one, one of the take she took away is, she said was, if you didn't document, it, it didn't happen. Right. You're putting someone in a position to say that it didn't happen because it was documented, you know? Yeah. So you got to document the important things. And uh, and that's one of the things we do in the operating.
1: room. Yeah. An important point. Well, and that was one of the main takeaways I came with Uh, one of the cases that I was the expert witness in, the tech did not document. And when she was deposed, she said, that's just my shorthand. That's not a document. And I'm like, no, that's the legal medical document. And you didn't put that you alerted the surgeon. It didn't happen. She had a communication with the online reader, but she never wrote down that she explained that to the surgeon. And that's where it came back. And I was like, But the problem was she's been doing this for years. So she's not somebody who's just walked in. I think it's just people sometimes get lax in it. And I think they need to remember every time you start a case, you need to put surgeon ordered and put that down or surgeon declined and put that down because that's going to cover your butt right off the bat. My team, we still um, work on the OR and train and, and I, I drill that home. I gave them the cases. I'm like, you need to look at this because this is what happened to this person. And she's been doing it a lot longer than you. And I think that um, opens the mind.
0: Being in an expert witness status like that, like you were, and having those experiences, I think it's very valuable. I mean, uh, that I think it's that's that's a good resource to teach people from. You know, I, I've been there, been at the kind of penultimate worst case scenario. And, and okay, when a case goes to trial and, and mm-hmm. this is how you can, this is what you need to be doing, you know? Yeah. Um, Do you have any, you have like any, some, I'm going to say tips or quick tips because, you know, this is a kind of weighty, serious matter, but what, you know, what do you, from your experiences being an expert witness, what, what do you recommend people do when they're in the operating room? If you want to, you know, protect yourself, your surgeon, uh, your company, whatever, like what are the things you need to be doing?
1: I always start off with what the surgeon ordered. Make sure you tell them what the baseline is and that they responded. If you just put, surgeon informed, you know, baselines reliable and repeatable, but you don't put that he acknowledged or she acknowledged, then they could say, well, i never told that. Um, and <laughs> I've worked with some surgeons that were just, I was just in the corner, like you said, to check a box and he would, you know, just grumble something at me and I would put it in quotes. <laughs> and so <laughs> that way, if anything ever came back, but I always, um, and like you said, we're the ones who are keeping tabs of what's going on through the whole case the circulator is busy doing their own thing Anesthesia is doing their own thing we're the ones who's doing okay well we're putting the trial in now or checking the positioning of something we're the ones who are documenting all that stuff that has to do with the case that nobody else is doing and i think documentation is is the key that that would be number one cover your butt because like you said if you didn't write it it didn't happen
0: yeah, that's an excellent point. I, I think well said. I mean, uh, I think it's something I would love people to t- have as a take home. So, what's maybe one big change you'd like to see in the field of neuromonitoring over the next five years?
1: Well, we've talked about National Registry. I mean, they've been talking about that since, since forever. And I was going to ask about that too. <laughs> yeah, I think that that would add a lot of weight to our field. I think a lot of people just see us as tech and You know, we're there in the corner and hopefully we keep our mouth shut. And when we don't, things usually go bad. But I think that if we had a national registry, people would look at us the same respect as a profession as they do for other positions in a hospital. And I think also it would keep us to have the bar high.
0: Yes, I like that. Uh, I agree with that. I keep thinking of this as like a a power train. You know, what's really going to establish us like if another field like Imaging, nursing, obviously, mm-hmm. anesthesia. Uh, it's, yeah. What, what's part of the power train that, you know, one part pushes another part, pushes another part, and, and develops the best patient care at the end of the day where we, we show up and people know who we are, we're legit. Yeah. The patient, like, I mean, I, want, I, I, mean, I look forward, I always tell people my, my ultimate goal with neuromonitoring is a day where uh, a patient shows up in clinic for the pre-op clinic uh, visit and surgeon says, oh, yeah, so we're going to use this company's hardware uh, and we're going to put screws in your back. They're like, okay, yeah, I'm kind of familiar with that. And, uh, you know, obviously we'll have anesthesia and they obviously know what that is, you know, we'll take x-rays and is so like, we am going to use neuromonitoring. Oh yeah, good. Okay, good. Yeah. You know, and just, that's just part of the plan. It's part of the, you know, yeah. part of the workflow, you know, not just, yeah. hey, what's that? <laughs> like, when exactly. Someone, someone shows up in the pre-op holding area and a patient's like, you know, okay, you know, everyone's coming at me and his neuromonitoring, hey, we're going to be operating room. we're going to do this to you. <laughs> Oh um, yeah. my goodness. yeah. and and it's good that we have that pre-op discussion with the patient. trust me, it's that's very important, but it shouldn't be their first exposure what we do. You know, it's a bad time to make it for a first impression, you
1: know, yeah. And I think a lot of that falls on the physician's office. Mm-hmm. So, um, the physician we work with, they're very heavy into neuromonitoring, and they explain everything ahead of time. So that is a huge help. And plus, they usually need us when we're doing the nerve conductions before the study. I definitely think that that would, Bring us to the next level. I agree yeah. with how. I agree
0: with the licensing. I like the badges that uh, Asset has been has been putting on. I saw you have got like three, obviously three of them on that it. it looks yeah. Nice. Working yeah.
1: on number four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good
0: luck on that. It's great, but and that's a testament. You're a testament to this idea that like, okay, we got to keep, we got to keep growing and working and, and, and learning and, and taking on the new challenge. Right now, I'm taking their leadership course in Asset. I'm like about roughly you know three quarters of the way through that one and uh, working on my homework assignments when I get a good time, but. <laughs> But I I I do like the fact that we just we're all constantly we you know I mean we need to see ourselves again not as a bun pusher but as medical professionals that you know and they always keep learning doctors keep learning nurses have to keep learning anesthesia keeps learning so do we right and uh, and and we have companies like yours and programs that you put out there I mean those are opportunities for people to to keep sharpening their skills and and getting better and learning new things learn the skill set you need before you need it you know you know ride the wave don't get pushed by it learn the, the the skill or you know, move into new territory, move out of your comfort zone before someone pushes you out of it.
1: Yeah. yeah. And a lot of physicians and doctors, if you explain to them what you're doing, we have a new neuro, uh, neurologist at the hospital. And I was explaining to him that I'm working towards my next registry. And he's like, hey, you ever have any questions? You never need any help with anything? Let me know. Because they know that you're not just doing the bare minimum, but you're actually trying to better yourself. And I think that makes a big difference. Surgeons would be the same way. They're looking at an x-ray and looking at something and say, Well, can you point that out to me? Why is that such and such, especially if you're new in the field and you're not used to looking at x rays and everybody looks at it and they're like, oh yeah, well that's obvious. And you're like, sorry, I don't see that. <laughs> can you show me what you're looking at? And a lot of people surgeons that I've worked with, I can only think of two really that I've worked with over the years that just did not want to help teach anything. They just want to go in there, do the job and go home. But a lot of them are very excited when somebody asks questions and then they can expound on something and explain why you have to do something the way you have to do it. And I think that makes all the difference too. I agree. I agree. Absolutely. And that could be one of the mentors that you would have new in the field. It doesn't have to be another tech.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, and again, it's not to say you can't have more than one mentor. Right. I I like that idea of, you know, reaching out, making connections and saying, you know, learning something and it's okay. Uh, And I want people in our field in particular, healthcare in general, we always have to be like, okay, so everyone makes mistakes, you know, God forbid they be a serious one, but you know, you know, how many years I've been in my field, I'm plugging my, my PTNs backwards.
1: (laughs) I know, right? They're a great you have to turn like the way the patient is. You know which side's the left and which is the right. Yes. <laughs> I said that. No,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm a I'm a lefty. The whole world is backwards to me. So trust me, I I trip up. You know I trip up. <laughs> but uh, having said that, having said that, um, yeah, I mean I I, will, I think we need to get as medical professionals we need to like be comfortable with you know saying you know we've made mistakes. We're gonna learn from our mistakes. We're gonna teach other people from our mistakes too. And, you know, and, and it's called classified m M&M conferences, essentially. It's like, OK, you know, bad things happen. Let's learn from it, you know, so that next time we're better, you know. And uh, and we need to be we need to do that, too, I think, is, is a field not saying, hey, you know, I, I know it all. And, you know, just I don't need to learn anything. You know, I'm good. You know, it's the worst. That's the worst case scenario. It's a it's a false safety net. You know, we're, you know, yeah, I think it might have been Augie Muller who, who said, you know, poor, poor neuromonitoring poor neur- is worse than no neuromonitoring.
1: <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, because otherwise the surgeon has a false sense of- security mm-hmm. and you're over there playing solitaire on your computer
0: yes exactly <laughs> exactly yes well said yeah uh, oh yeah um going back to this idea of creating identity we are called technologists we're called uh we're called neurophysiologists so if, you know i was just a number of terms out there neuromonitoring specialists uh what i mean and i think it's part of a problem is is you know what do you really tell people you are i mean it's Obviously, I have a badge that says, I've okay, got a bunch of badges because I work for everybody. <laughs> I'm, a <mercenary, laughs> I'm a mercenary, essentially. But I uh, one of my badges says neurophysiologist. Okay, so I can tell yeah. like, hey, I'm a neurophysiologist, and it sounds great. It sounds like, you know, oh, neurophysiologist. What do you think we should be calling ourselves? Those of us that have a CNIM, we step into the operating room, assuming we have no PhD, for example, where do you think we should be pegging ourselves You know, to give people a handle to say, this is what you are, you know?
1: So I heard, and I'm not even sure who I heard it from. If you, I've heard, if you're not registered, you're a technician. If you are registered, you're a technologist. So in the operating room, I'd be an interoperative monitoring technologist. Um, And that's the same for EEG. I would be an EEG technologist. I don't know if that's the case, but that just kind of stuck with me when someone said that. And I'm like, well, that makes sense.
0: I have heard that too. Uh years ago, I've heard that. That was kind of the understanding that, you know, technologist was, and I, I think it looked this up at one point, um, but the technologist essentially s- assumes you have a certification that is widely recognized in your field as the gold standard. So see that yeah. right now, for example. Yeah. What's your thoughts on neurophysiologist?
1: Um, when I first started, that's what I was told that I was. And then as I've learned more, I've heard that you have to have a PhD for that. And it's a whole different ball of wax. We're here to put needles in you and we're going to leave bruises. So, but you'll be asleep. So don't worry about it. And we're going to play the <laughs> anesthesia anyway. So it's <laughs> good.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you, you make a good point. I, again, I just interviewed Lauren Feltz. You know, listen to her interview because she had some good takes on this too. She brought up a good point, I think, is she said, like, you know, what, what is the patient's reaction? Where this and we walk in the room and say, hey, we're a neurophysiologist. What are they thinking? Are they thinking we are a doctor?
1: Oh, are you wearing scrubs? I mean, you put it all together. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. should be driving a very nice car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you should be parking right in front of the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Good
0: man. I think it's one thing we gotta. We're gonna have to kind of settle through the professional societies at some point and say, okay, what what are we gonna call people? You know, at each level of our field, and uh, just give people a better kind of just understanding, so that we can we can present a face to the public and say, and, and rest of healthcare, so they know when they he- hear who we are, what we are. You know, as opposed, you're a scrub tech, you're a scrub nurse. You know, you're an AA, you're a CRNA, you know. Right. AA, right. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think that'll go a long way to helping or helping her field kind of establish a good identity. This has been a great, great discussion. Lots of good material here.
1: I think we covered everything. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we
0: covered <laughs> I think a lot we here.
1: Covered it all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah a lot well, of it.
0: This is this has been a fantastic discussion. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thankful to have Jennifer on the program today you can check out Trusted Neurodiagnostics Academy at trustedacademy.com. To everyone in the neurodiagnostic industry, thank you for everything you do. Your work matters every day. Don't forget to check out the newsletter on LinkedIn, the IONM for Life Insider. You can subscribe and get updates to new developments in our field, interviews, upcoming webinars from our professional societies, and who's hiring. See you back here next time for another adventure in Neuromonitoring. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IONM for Life podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please remember to like, subscribe, and tell a friend. Join us next time for more stimulating adventures. This podcast is not affiliated with any medical device or monitoring company. At the present time, the IONM for Life podcast does not accept any advertising money. All opinions expressed on the IONM for Life podcast do not necessarily represent the views and opinions held by myself or anyone associated with the IONM for Life podcast. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. I welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors.